Wonderful to see you all this afternoon, though there seems like it's a little bit missing down towards the center aisle and kind of off to one side, but glad for each soul that can be here tonight and for those that may be uh, viewing on the, uh, on the streaming channel. Um, let's just go to the book of James, James chapter 1. I'd like you to, we're just going to start there as an introduction. We're actually going to spend all our time in, in chapter 4. But just to set a little bit of a context about who is being spoken to and what, um, we'll start there. When we look at James chapter 1, verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting... And he begins to speak to them about his brethren, and in the verses, um, some of the subsequent verses, he talks to them about his uh, beloved brethren in a couple verses. And this is important because he, he addresses many topics in this letter, and some of them he, he gets a bit harsh with, uh, with the, the, the people that he's writing to, necessarily so. Um, many think that this was the first um, book of the Bible that was added to the canon of Scripture. I don't know for sure. Some attribute it to about 45 A.D. But certainly the topics that are addressed are, were then for as uh, those uh, tribes that were scattered uh, all over the then known world. You could get an idea who some of those were when you read in Acts chapter 2 at the time of Pentecost when the different uh, tribes of Jews or different groups of Jews from different countries assembled there and they talked about places like Libya, Pontius, uh, Phrygia, uh, Cyrene, Crete, as well as Judea and, and other places. And so he's talking about pretty much the then known world uh, that had been beginning to be at to be affected by Christianity. And so, <clears throat> he, the verses 16 and 19 I want to look at particularly there, where it mentions his beloved brethren. He was, everything that he was speaking to them was with a heart of love. Just as uh, God gives us in all of his word, I believe it's all for us from God's heart of love. Yeah. Uh, because it's what we need um, that was one of the signature um, aspects of Jesus' preaching and teaching. He didn't always give the people what they wanted to hear, but he always gave them what they needed to hear. And certainly this book is just as important as any other in its doctrine and its teaching for the people then and for us now today. Um, so, turn over to chapter 4. In chapter 4... He addresses some matters that are of, of deep concern. He begins by asking them a question. In uh, James chapter 4, verse 1, it says, uh, and I want you to keep in mind that um, the, uh, the benchmark verse that we're going to spend most of our time on is verse 4. But he begins, he says, From whence cometh wars and fighting among you, Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill 
and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will free from you, flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. He then says in verse 10, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll continue. <clears throat> Wonderful Father, we thank you um, from the bottom of our hearts uh, for what you mean to us as Christians. Lord, uh, even as we now look to you on your throne, it is to you that we should uh, give all honor and Magister and glory for majesty and glory for who you are, uh, what you've done for this sin sick world, what you've done for us as individuals who've been born into your forever family. We thank you for the word of God that we can know your will for our lives. And Lord, that you'd help us to, to learn these teachings and these precepts, these commandments. Lord, indeed, that we'd hide them up in our heart, that we might not sin against Thee. Lord, it's our desire to seek that matter of holiness, Lord, separation from the world and to You, that everything that we do in this life uh, could be found acceptable in Thy sight. In Christ's name, I humbly pray. Amen. So in this fourth chapter, he addresses the source of wars and fightings, disputes, battles, and controversies that they were going through because of lust or covetousness. In verse, there's number, several, several uses um, that are definitions of this term lust that's used in these verses. For instance, in verse 2, um, <clears throat> where it says, ye lust and have not, that word uh, epithumio means to covet, uh, to desire rightfully or wrongfully, and it's linked with that word concupiscence that's often used, it's always used as something that was, was of ungodly uh, desire for things that are uh, unholy or, right, or not right or sinful. And in verses 1 through 3, um, it uses a slightly different term, uh, hedone, uh, which means it talks about sensual delights. Things that are, some things that are put before us that, that we would desire simply because of something, how they appeal to our physical senses. And <clears throat> commentators sometimes, uh, as I was reading <clears throat> the commentary on this portion of scripture, on verse 5 there, I kind of was come up with loggerheads on this when I read this. It says, do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? 
And when I first read this, I was thinking like he was talking about the spirit that dwells us in our flesh, that it is, it, it's, a, it's also just given to envy or jealousy. But as I studied it out a little bit more and I looked at some other verses <clears throat> and I saw some other commentary, I simply, when you go back to verse 4, what he's talking about there, he says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Okay, we know and understand that in the marital sense, it's talking about when the marital uh, bond has been violated by unfaithfulness. Okay? And so he's talking to these people. He's not talking to them in the, in the physical sense so much, perhaps. I don't know. But 100%, I know for sure, he was appealing to their spiritual nature about how that they, because they had been all this fighting and warring and so on, it, had, it was because they'd taken their eyes off the Lord and had been walking in the ways of the flesh. <clears throat> but when I looked at this, I come to see um, that this spirit, even though it's not capitalized there, it, you know, it says that the spirit that dwelleth in us, the Holy Spirit, lusteth the envy, well, it seems to me that he was talking about that God was saying, uh, I am not happy with what you have done in your relationship to me. As being a part of my family, as being one of my children, we're going to look at a little bit here further about being a part of my bride, that I have a spouse to myself. I'm jealous for you, and I want the best for you. I want you to be faithful to me. A husband and wife, they, they can expect that from one to the other, to have faithfulness to each other. And God wants us and expects from us 100% faithfulness. He uses this term, adulterer and adulteress, as a strong term. But he wants us to understand how God views on our unfaithfulness to him. It's a serious thing. And so, you know, <clears throat> you can take it or leave it, my interpretation of that, but that's, that's where I'll leave it for now. Pastor Humphrey, you can talk to him about it later on. But, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's interesting to me when, when I look at the Ten Commandments, I sometimes say to myself, you know, you know, Lord, I'm doing pretty good with most of these. You know, I keep the Lord's day. You know, I'm not given to idols. I don't take the Lord's name in vain too much. I don't lie, cheat, or steal, or, or you know, I'm not given to murder and those things. Well, you know, Lord, I don't really think I'm doing too bad, you know. That's the flesh talking, of course. But then you come to the 10th commandment, and we sometimes gl gloss over this one. It says there in the 10th commandment in Exodus 20, 17, 17 says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. This last commandment covers a lot of ground. And the whole range of responsibilities to obey all of them. Um, certainly to, to obey, to, uh, to lust or have covetousness for 
your neighbor's wife well, enters into about this matter of adultery, but it goes beyond that. When it says his house, it's not just the physical dwelling, but everything that belongs to that man of his house, his family, uh, and then certainly his possessions, each and every one. But then, you know, it, gets to, it says everything, and, and uh, it says, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So what's that talking about? Well, I thought about that. It could be his wealth, his health, his position, his prestige. You know, I wish I was good looking like that guy. You know, I'd have it easy in the world. Well, to have an unnatural desire for those things, the Bible says it is sin. It is, this covetousness is an unhealthy uh, situation that can lead us away from him. Satan in his pride, he coveted the things of the God of his creation and it led him to his downfall. We know from, from Isaiah chapter 14, those great I will statements. Let's see if I can find it here. Isaiah chapter 14, it says... Um, Verse 13, he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Well, <clears throat> I sometimes wonder, um, what was it that fueled, was it pride that fueled Satan's covetousness? Or was it his covetousness that fueled his pride that caused him to rebel against God and caused him to be cast from, cast from heaven and consigned one day to the fires of hell, the lake of fire? Dangerous stuff. It's a matter of lust, of covetousness, of concupiscence, the kind of unhealthy desires that can lead only to ruin. For Satan and those angels that, that banded together, it's only ruin that they'll ever know. But for the Christian, and remember that James was writing predominantly to Christians here, he said we need to be careful what we put our eyes to. We need to be careful about the things that we give our heart and our mind to. We need to be careful about the things that we would set to be at a higher degree of affection or love than our great God. <clears throat> and so, in verse 4, when he says again, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. <clears throat> with God, sees everything in, in black and white. There's no, uh, there's no fence sitting with God. Uh, we like to move things around and say, well, maybe, or I think, or whatever, but with God, it's right or wrong. It's holy or profane. You're either his friend or your enemy, and that's what he says. By the way, if you're not born into God's family, you cannot be his friend. Get that figured out. But God wants us to understand about this matter that... We explained about what adultery is, and it's a serious, uh, it's a serious offense, 
in the, in the physical sense, in the marital sense, but it's even, it's even as serious in the spiritual sense, in our relationship with God. Worldliness constitutes unfaithfulness towards God. When we give ourselves over to worldliness, we are giving ourselves over to someone other than the one to whom we have been promised. 2 Corinthians 11.2, it says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. You get that, remember? He has a right to be jealous over the relationship that we have with him. His is 100% our way for us. And he wants, he wants us to have that same single-minded love, that John 3.16 love, that so loved the world that he died for us. He wants us to emulate to him that same kind of love, that self-sacrificial love <coughs> that's talked about in the royal law. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, and all thy strength. Um, if we can get working on that, and if we can be serious about accomplishing that, we've gone some, some great distance <clears throat> in our relationship with God and our fellowship with Him. Again, he says, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste version to Christ. Now, I'm not going to go into about the bride of Christ and what it is, who all may be in it. I believe it's the New Testament church for sure. Some commentators believe it's the whole family of God. Personally, I do not. But we know this espousal was a serious thing. We know amongst the Jews, when, like Joseph and Mary, when he was, when Joseph and Mary were espoused to one another, it was as they were still already married. And that relationship was just waiting to be consummated. Just even as the bride of Christ, this marriage supper of the Lamb, we consummated in heaven, I uh, believe during the time of the tribulation, believers are going to be all taken out of here, and we're going to be with the Lord in heaven. Many, many things are going to be going on, the judgment seat of Christ and so on, <clears throat> but also I believe this marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be taking place, something that what the faithful will have a part of. Well, <clears throat> marriage experts tell us that there are certain stages that someone goes through in having a marital affair, and there are the same type of parallels in spiritual adultery or unfaithfulness to God. The first one is distance. <clears throat> this comes about through a sense of loss of intimacy or emotional connectedness, connectedness with one's spouse or one's God. In this stage, we become distant from God. So look at uh, chapter 4, verse 8. <clears throat> what does it say? It says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Well, if we weren't apart from him, we wouldn't have to draw a knight to him. We wouldn't have to get closer to him. That's the first step when we begin to step away from God. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, in that first chapter, he says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when what? When he is drawn away of his own lust, that's that, that, that term there is 
translate as concupiscence, evil desire, and he's enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. Nothing good comes from this matter of distancing ourselves from God. The second point is gratification. This is where we choose to turn away from God. We begin to seek to promise to gratify ourselves from sinful desires. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And every one of those words for love there, for man, or for, for, for God, or for the world, is the same. Agapeo, agape, love. When we turn our own love in that, it, to seek and gratification from the things of the world, <clears throat> the Bible says it's enmity at God. It makes us his enemy. And it's talking about believers now, predominantly. We can put ourselves in a position where we're not in a, where, where God does not view us in a, in a wholesome, well, in a, in a way it's, that's right for us. And then there talks about being disconnected to God. In this stage, we actively become friends with the world. When I read this, I immediately thought of Psalm verses 1, verse 1, where it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, okay, going along, things in the world, nor standeth in the way of sinners. Now he's brought to halt and he's looking things over nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That means they've sat down, they've accepted it, and that's the way they're living in life. Prioritization, here is where we become conformed to the world, where we become now more and more like that which we've given our heart, our mind, our, soul, our body and soul too. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse two, be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It says rather to be what? To be, in Romans chapter 8, it says to be conformed to the image of Christ. So one or the other is going to be happening in our spiritual life. One or the other. We're either going to be seeking to conform ourselves to the image of our Savior, to be holy as I am holy, or the other world, the world's got a hold of you and it's molding you into something that's not holy. That's not right before God. <clears throat> and finally, the culmination of that spiritual unfaithfulness, in this stage we become stained by this world, and we may end up, even as it speaks of in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed unto Thessalonica. That's what happened to Demas. He took his eyes off the Lord. He began walking in the world, and it ate him up, and it caused him to walk away. What happened to Demas in the rest of his life, we don't know, but he wasn't serving the Lord. <clears throat> the Bible teaches that worldliness or identification in the world is enmity towards God. Again, back in chapter 4, uh, verse 4, it says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? 
Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Um, you either, it's like they used to say, you're either for us or against us. You're either for God or you're against Him. The word enemy, enemy and enmity are translated from related words in the Greek. Enmity means hostility or warfare. An enemy is as an adversary, even as Satan. That's serious stuff. That's the way God looks at the, per, the unfaithful Christian. <clears throat> there is a spiritual principle involved in these words of James that no one can serve two masters. Jesus himself taught this principle to us. Luke chapter 16, verse 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's going to be one or the other. There's no middle ground in God's eyes. You got that? In God's eyes? In our eyes, you know. That's where the flesh wants, deceives us. It wants to think we can walk, walk in our own, uh, walk by our own sight, by our own faith in our own self, in our own strength. And when we get there, <clears throat> Satan has us right where, we, where he wants us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says again, Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, that's that term, concupiscence, which war against the soul. God makes it an either-or matter, a matter which we must choose whom we will serve. God is holy, and He will not accept spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness on one hand, and a relationship with Him on the other. <clears throat> Again, we're going to look at this in a little bit, but I just... It, the Bible says that a double-minded man is unstable in his ways. You can't have it both ways. God does not want us playing, playing games with Him and the world. We need to get it settled. When we see ourselves following some, get falling into some of these situations and distancing from God and His Word and His, whole, His house, we need to get drawn back and draw nigh to Him and get where we can... Um, receive his blessing. Remember, I've taught when I, I still go with it back to this all the time from that message on uh, on be holy as I am holy. Take time to be holy. Speak off with thy Lord. Abide in Him always and feed on His Word. That's where we need to be if we're going to be able to be, to continue to be faithful to our great God. Okay, so the, pre the preventative for being found in this deplorable situation of being unfaithful, it's very, very simple. It's God's grace. <clears throat> Verse 6, he says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Now we know the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of that works that any man should boast. We have his unmerited favor that leads us to salvation, 
But this is what this is talking about divine enablement or his strength, um, his wisdom, his bearing that can help us to go through life in a matter of keeping ourselves insulated from the world and separated to him. <clears throat> As I thought on this subject of God's grace, the aspect of God's forbearance in relationship to his grace became of great interest to me for there have been times when I shudder to think of what might have befallen me without it. There are many nuances to God's forbearance, but one aspect of it is God, when he forbears us in our relationship, it's as God looks upon the things that we have done, say, initially in our sin, he looks upon our sin and he sees us as guilty and he sees us as deserving hell and as deserving punishment. But he forbears this. He says, no, I am going to give you the length of your life in, this, in, the, in, the, in relationship to call to repentance and faith. I'm going to forbear punishment for now. I'm not going to take it away, but I'm going to give you the chance to come to me. That's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? <clears throat> We've had plenty of teaching on that. He said he gave them one commandment, remember, to eat not, to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, lest they surely die. <clears throat> when they disobeyed God and they and they took that fruit and ate of it, the sentence of death came upon them, spiritually and physically. They died immediately spiritually. They no longer had a relationship with him in a family sense. And God, in all righteousness, could have taken their life and sent them to hell that was, he, had, he, had, he had created for the devil and his angels. Man was never ordained to go there. But God forbear, forbear, forbore that punishment of Adam and Eve, and he gave them the opportunity to repent. That's how wonderful this aspect of God's forbearance is. And when I think for where I was in the world and the things that I went through till I was 34 years of age when I got saved, I'm thankful that God didn't require my life for all the sin that I had done in my life. Murder in my heart, lusting for gold and things of the world, and God could have righteously taken my life any day from the, from the, from the time of the day of my accountability, 10, 12 years old, whatever it was, from that day on, I became liable to death. And it was as if, and for every person that's not born into God's family, it's like that lost person going around in the world and people, you know, sitting in church pews. It's like that the lost person is on death row understand what death row is when a person is convicted of a capital crime and the sentence of death comes upon them it, they're just waiting for it to be acted out and, they, and oftentimes it, in, in our prisons today it might be years and years and years before it's acted out but in the spiritual sense <clears throat> the individual that's lost that hasn't come to Christ there, there's a death sentence upon them the wages of sin is death and unless they 
repent and believe, God is going to be forced to consign them to hell. But what I consider what God did for me in leading me to salvation, is in the Romans 2.4, Who despisest thou the riches and goodness of, and the forbearance and the longsuffering, knowing not that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. That's uh, when, I, when I contemplate who I was, where I was going, and what God did to draw me to the cross, I am humbled. But he would do that for me. The Bible says in Acts 17, verse 30, at times of us ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. If you haven't believed on Jesus Christ, the only reason that you're in this world today, the, the, the sentence of death is upon you, the only reason that he hasn't acted that out is God is choosing right now to forbear your punishment. He's hoping that you'll come to him in repentance and faith. And so we need God's divine enablement to meet the challenges in our spiritual life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, <clears throat> And he said unto me, My grace, this was, he was speaking to Paul, he says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, our weakness. When we understand who we are and how much we need him, and we trust in him, then he can work, and he can use his power and his strength through us. He says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Didn't he say, humble yourself in the sight of God and he'll lift, lift you up? <clears throat> Look at verse 6. It says, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Why is it that God only gives his grace to the humble? Because the proud don't believe they need it. They have their own measure of self-justification before God. But consider this. Romans chapter 10, verse 29 says, Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of his covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. So the most precious being to God the Father is his Son. And the most precious substance in this universe is the blood of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only substance that can wash away the sin of, the, of these sin-sick individuals, us. And for the individual that turns their back on that, uh, well, God says, how much sore punishment could there be? Well, you're going to hell. That's the punishment for turning you away from God. It's the spirit of grace that gives us the spiritual insight, that gives us the spiritual backbone to say no in the time of temptation and to, and to seek to be faithful to the God of our creation, 
the God of our salvation. Lastly, we must submit ourselves to the authority and evidence humility in our life. Submission to authority and humility. It would seem that these two characteristics should go hand in hand, yet it seems the fleshly part of us fights against this constantly, at least with me. <clears throat> uh, one thing I've learned of late is that the battle against the flesh will never end in this life. I thought it would get easier the older I became in Christ, but anything, it gets, it gets harder. And I think one of the reasons why the Lord had me preach this message for me and the significance for our churches is that as, we, as we're going forward more and more and more and more and more to reach the souls here in Alaska, that we're going to receive more and more and more persecution. There's going to become more temptation. Satan is going to come. The world, the flesh, and the devil is going to try to separate you and me from the work that God would ha is trying to do through us right now. He does not want to see us become spiritually unfaithful, become spiritual adulterers or adulteresses. We're in a battle for the souls of men. And God is calling us and individuals and as a church to a higher calling to be serious about the fight that we're in and to keep at it for His glory, not ours, for His glory. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 1.12 says, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity, that's single-mindedness and godly sincerity, purity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. Well, that, that term conversation, it literally means life as a citizen. Okay, our citizenship really isn't in this world, it's, it's in heaven. We're part of God's kingdom. <clears throat> and our conversation or our lifestyle should be fit or reflect the Son of God the Lord Jesus Christ. It should reflect the God that we know as our Father. We should it should reflect the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us and urges us and it compels us to follow after the things that we know to do and to keep from the things that we know not to do. <clears throat> because we're servants. Believers, Christians are saved to serve. That is our duty. For we his workmanship in Christ Jesus unto good works that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Philippians 1.27, it says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. There it is. You see, this is what we're trying to take. Pastor, we're going to see some more about the, the villages we're trying to take the gospel to. They're trying to take the gospel of Christ, that some of these, that these people can be one. Is that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. <clears throat> faith. Not unfaithfulness, but faithfulness to God. You know, of a certainty, life is a learning process. Some things may come easy, some things may come hard. Some things we learn and get settled early in life, in our Christian life. 
Some things take much longer. Some things we learn on our own. Some things we learn the hard way. Some things are, come right from God, and these are the lessons that are most valuable and precious. Those things, those moments, those, those times when God speaks to you through his word, and he shows you something that you really need for your life and your service to him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, when Jesus was speaking that to the, his apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was talking to them in the physical sense. They were tired out. They were worn out. He told them to watch and pray. They just couldn't do it. And then it was time for them to go, for him to go to the cross. But for me, when it says the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, I'd rather look at it this way. In the spiritual sense, I find this, that in myself, the spirit is not always willing, and the flesh is always powerful. We can never let up in our battle with the flesh. We don't want to be fond as spiritual adulterers, spiritual adult, adulteresses, being unfaithful to him. That's why it's important, the importance of verse 8 uh, comes home to us. He says, again, draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. You see, he was talking to these people that were in a position that they needed to turn from. I'm talking to you tonight about that you would keep from these positions that you never have to turn from a position of unfaithfulness, of spiritual adultery, of being unfaithful to God. Know what to do and do it. He says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands. That's a matter of our, our sanctification. Sanctification is when we are separated from the from the power of sin at the time of our salvation, but sanctification is also a process that we have a part in. <clears throat> that we need to be able to take, take control of this flesh. How, many, how often did Paul talk about mortifying the flesh, subdue the flesh, put it to death, walk in the Spirit. He says, purify your hearts and be ye Double-minded, he said, and, and, and purify hearts, ye double-minded. Well, he said there in James chapter 1, verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. There's no way that we can be living in one, with one foot in the world and one foot living for Christ. Uh, we're we're going to be, God says we're either for him or against him, we're either an enemy or we're a friend. And it would be well to remember that when we step outside the door, we enter into the enemy's territory. The world and the influences of it are all around us all the time. You don't even have to go out your door. The things we're assaulted from in the papers, in the media, it just never ends. <clears throat> but we need to have on that spiritual armor. <clears throat> we need to have those <clears throat> spiritual blinders on. 
Well, my dad, we, had, we still had horses when I was a kid. My dad would take the horses out in the field, and uh, they had a tractor too, but he'd take the horses out in the field. I remember the horses, they had, they had blinders on them. It was part of their harness. And that, you know, the binders was so that they weren't distracted. They were, they were focusing on the furrow. They were focusing on going ahead, the work that was right in front of them. And they had the blinders on so they weren't distracted by what was going on over here. And that's the way we need to be. We need to have those spiritual blinders on. In the sense, the horse, we put it on the horse and, and they didn't have anything to do about it. But we have to do that ourselves. We have to use that, that discipline to keep ourselves from the things that we shouldn't be doing and, draw to, and keep focused on the things that we need to be doing. Because we know First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking who may devour He's trying to devour Christians. The people out in the world, he's already got them in his snare. He isn't worried about them. We're to try to get to draw them in, but he's after you and me. He's after Christians. He's trying to compromise, get us to compromise our fellowship with God. He's trying to, to cause us to not be faithful to God and his word and to give ourselves to his world, the matters of the flesh. God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. Don't be so foolish as to think you can fight your own spiritual battles. Remember, God said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so as we remember our responsibility to God, draw upon his strength, to be able to rest in his strength and power and allow him to work through us. And he'll help us to use that shield of faith the spiritual armor that we go in and through life, uh, we can be successful servants for the God. He says, resist the devil and the temptations of the world, and we can know then the blessings of God. So, uh, I'll leave it there. Except I would say that uh, if any person hasn't came to the point of the knowledge of their salvation, we talked about the age of accountability. God's going to hold everyone accountable. There's going to be a judgment seat for every individual. Get it done the matter of your salvation while you have length of life uh, and have the ability to make the choice to repent and believe. Pastor Humphrey.